0: y'all have a great Thanksgiving? Awesome. Awesome, me too. This morning we'll be continuing in our series in Luke. So if you have a Bible, uh, meet me at Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the end of your row. We'd like to give you one after this service if that is you. Uh, But as you're turning to uh, Luke chapter 17... Uh, As we begin, I want to ask you all, now that Thanksgiving is over, with the understanding that there are some major football games ahead of us, yes. But by show of hands, is there anyone looking forward to primetime basketball season? Yeah, There's some in here who are. Okay, I thought that that would be the case. I have to admit that I am not a basketball fan myself. Being from Georgia, we don't have great basketball down there. Um, But there are some players that I do... Really uh, respect some players I like to follow, uh, follow their seasons, follow their careers, their professional lives. One of those players is none other than the king of basketball himself, LeBron James. Now I know that might be controversial for some. However, however <laughs> LeBron James, there's something really unique about his life. There's something really unique that I want to highlight today as a springboard into our text this morning. Something I think that whether you're a basketball fan or not, you can also appreciate. It's something that his fans did see back in 2014. You see, LeBron James has always had a firm root, a firm hold on his roots. He's never forgotten where he came from. He started his professional career with the Cleveland Cavaliers because that was his home community. He didn't live too far away from there, uh, from an Akron about 30, 45 minutes outside of Cleveland. And in 2014, he returned back to Cleveland. He returned to his roots. He didn't forget where he came from because he's invested in his roots. He's invested in that community. He's invested time and effort and money into supporting the local boys and girls club in Akron. He, he has his own charity foundation there. He holds an annual bike-a-thon to raise money for the community, and in, I believe, 2020, he has plans to start supporting thousands of students to attend the University of Akron. So we could say that LeBron James, basketball fan or not, is someone who holds on to his roots. And these roots are what propel him to be great on and off the court. My question as we come to our text this morning is, what about your roots? Does where you come from have an impact on how you live life day to day? What about your roots in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that he's offered to many of us in here, to all of us who would believe. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ propel you forward in the mission that he's given to each one of us? To propel you forward to pursue righteousness in your own life and pursue righteousness in the community of faith that you're a part of? Or have your roots become forgotten lately? In the recent weeks, has sin become ever more enticing to you? Have you found it more inconvenient to deal with the sin of someone else rather than to love them in Christ? Have you found it difficult to forgive someone lately? Has it been hard to serve Christ faithfully every single day? The answer to these questions, I find myself answering yes to a lot of them. Do you? See, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to be specifically speaking to his disciples and those of us in here who do follow Jesus Christ in our lives to remember our roots, to humbly acknowledge where we came from, to humbly acknowledge that Christ has made all the difference in our lives, to humbly acknowledge that it's his mission that we're called to be faithful to. So if you don't get anything else out of the text this morning, get this main point that disciples of Jesus who humbly acknowledge their position before God will fight against sin through the active work of forgiveness. I'll say it one more time, should be on the screen. Disciples of Jesus who humbly acknowledge their position before God will fight against sin through the active work of forgiveness. I'm going to read the passage, and we're going to pray, and we're going to jump right in to understanding what Jesus wants to teach us this morning. So in verse 1 of chapter 17, the Gospel of Luke, Word of God says this, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. We ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to teach us what you have to say, that you would help us to be disciples who humbly acknowledge that we are forgiven, that we would be disciples who, out of that forgiveness, fight against sin, pursue righteousness together. Forgive one another faithfully, and I pray, God, that you would speak through me, and Lord, that you would just challenge our hearts, that we would be changed from this point on. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel writer Luke begins this passage with a private conversation that Jesus initiates with his disciples. So as we begin our time, I thought it would be helpful to to start by understanding what are the root foundations of a disciple? See, disciples are sinners. That means that if you follow Christ, you and I, we in here are sinners. But God in his abundant mercy and his extravagant love sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be buried for three days, to rise again from death after three days, so that anyone who repents and believes in him might have and experience objectively the forgiveness of, of their sins, So if you're a disciple, you and I, we in here, we have been forgiven from our sins. Not to revert back into partaking in them, but foundationally then, we've been forgiven from the enslaving bondage. We just sang about this, the enslaving bondage of sin to the freedom to fighting against it. This leads us to our first point of the text today is that forgiven disciples fight against sin. Forgiven disciples fight against sin. With this in mind, reflect back with me where we have been in Luke. Some of you are just joining us here this morning. So in the last two chapters of Luke, chapters 15 and 16, Jesus has been publicly teaching. He's been publicly making a point to the Pharisees that the kingdom of heaven, this new reality that he's initiating in the gospel, is not a reality that requires a perfection or status or money, but it's a reality that invites sinners of all kinds, peoples from all sorts of backgrounds, into. We saw this very truth last week in chapter 16 with the poor man Lazarus, and we're going to see it next week in verses 11 through 19 with the sick. So if the kingdom of heaven is open to all sorts of sinners, what then are his disciples to do when sinners' lives are transformed by the gospel? When sinners' lives are transformed by the forgiveness of sins that Jesus is about to instill for them when he's about to go to the cross. How is the community of faith supposed to respond? Jesus here in this passage instructs these disciples what they are to do when this occurs. But possibly and even more importantly, Jesus knows that these disciples are sinners too. We've made that clear. Disciples are sinners too. So Jesus is Going to instruct them also how to be faithful in this new kingdom community. And Jesus begins his instruction with some of the most encouraging news, does he not? Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, temptations to sin are sure to come. So, hey disciples, from now on, just so you know, it's going to be impossible to to live in this world without, without facing temptation to sin. It's going to be impossible. This is probably not the teaching uh, that the disciples were itching to hear from Jesus. Probably not the teaching that you came here this morning to hear, that temptations are sure to come in your life. But Jesus is straight up with these disciples, is he not? He wants them to know, and he wants them to know that those whom they convert, those whom they see changed by the gospel, and then disciple, that, hey, all your problems are not going away when you get saved. All your problems are not going away when you become a Christian. And we know this too, don't we? It's true. This world is still influenced by the devil according to Ephesians 2.2. People are still lost in their sin and Satan doesn't want you to be a faithful gospel disciple nor does he want you to be a faithful gospel witness in this world. And so he's going to try everything in his power to get you to fall into the temptations to sin. He's going to try everything that he can to get you to slip up. He, is, he knows where you are weak and he's going to pray on those spiritual weaknesses. And this is where Jesus' admonition in verse 3 comes in. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Just because the disciples were following the Messiah didn't give them any special privilege. It didn't lift them to a higher position in their spiritual lives. They were not exempt from temptation. And likewise, we who have been saved from our sins are not exempt from temptation either. If we're living in this world, which we all are, we're going to be faced with temptation, and we must be paying attention. Why? Because forgiven disciples fight against sin, and there's hope for us in this fight. We're not left alone. I think on a practical note, it's, it's helpful for us to recognize the temptations that we are tempted with, that, that we struggle with. It's helpful to recognize those in advance, maybe make a list. Write them down, give them to your spouse or give them to a friend, give them to a pastor so that they can pray for you about and keep you accountable in. But we can also fight against sin by fleeing temptation in the moment that we're faced with it. 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with temptation he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it so look if you've already experienced salvation in here from Jesus Christ you've experienced the power of god already to forgive you this power is the power of the of the holy spirit who has sealed you according to Ephesians 1:13 and who now lives in you to fight against sin so if you're forgiven Disciple of Jesus Christ, you have the power to fight against personal temptations towards sin in your life. Paul, the apostle, writes again in Romans uh, chapter 8 and verses 9 through 11, speaking to the church in Rome, he says this to them. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. The temptation to sin. When you're tempted, calmly and confidently speak the gospel to yourself. Remember what God has already done for you in forgiving you so that you would be empowered to flee the temptation that's oftentimes staring you in the face. But fighting against personal sin is not the only thing that forgiven disciples are to fight against. Look at the rest of verse 1 and 2 with me. Jesus says, but woe to the one through whom they, which is stumbling blocks or temptations, temptations to sin, come. It would be better for him or her if a millstone, which is a very large boulder, were hung around his neck and he were cast thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You see, when we're saved, we're saved into a community of disciples to follow Jesus Together, that's what we're trying to do at Treasure in Christ Church. We're trying to follow Jesus together here. But in this community here, the community in Luke chapter 17, many other communities around, there are some, and I'm not saying here, but in Luke 17, in in the first century after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, there are some who would then reject the authority of Christ and the authenticity of his teachings and then choose to subvert his authority to lead others in contradiction to his teachings. See, Jesus possibly has in mind, looking back, the the scribes and the Pharisees who have contradicted Jesus all along his ministry. We've seen that already in the book of Luke. And for centuries, these scribes and these Pharisees, they've led the, the sheep of Israel astray into eternal judgment. But Jesus also is looking forward to what's to come. And as we've seen in other New Testament letters, that that Jesus speaks to the Spirit, to the gospel writers, to write down warnings against false teachers and wolves that would come in, spiritual wolves who would come into Christian fellowships to deceive believers and lead others astray. We uh, We see that reality happening in the New Testament. I think many of us have seen that already happening in our day and age. And this is a reality that Jesus warns his disciples about as an external possibility. It's an external possibility because sinners enter into this new community of faith. But lest the disciples, lest we think that we're holier than thou, verse 3 also in application applies to them and applies to us. Again, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. The disciples were not above sinning in this way. They were not above thinking of themselves too highly. And they weren't above contradicting, contradicting the claims of Christ so that they could be innovative to gain more followers. This was a grave sin with eternal consequences. Then, it's still a grave sin with eternal consequences now. So, as 21st century disciples, we're to fight for sound doctrine in our churches. We're to fight for sound doctrine in our fellowships, our community groups, in our at-work place Bible studies. We're to fight for sound doctrine in our families. We're to protect the young in the faith, not just children, from temptations of the ear that up front sound good, that are enticing, but are not truth. Some of these up front, uh, sounding good to the ear temptations might be something like the prosperity gospel and the universality of all religions and the liberal acceptance of homosexual behavior in the the Christian community and even the neoconservative alt-right theology movement that many in our country are falling prey to today. So church, we have to be on guard together fighting against sin in our community. We have to pay attention. And as we understand ourselves as disciples of Jesus who are forgiven, we then can in turn help others to fight sin personally in their lives, fight sin as they are in our community, and we can forgive others faithfully. This is the second point of our text today, is that forgiven disciples help others fight sin and forgive. Look at the rest of verse 3 with me. Jesus instructs his, uh, he instructs his disciples what to do when there's another believer committing sin in an unrepentant manner. Jesus says that this believer must be rebuked. For Luke's purposes here, because other gospel writers write about uh, rebuking believers, but for Luke's purposes here, he's, he's highlighting that, that Jesus cares deeply about the holiness of the community of faith. He desires for them to pursue righteousness together by holding one another accountable to true kingdom living, but just for clarification purposes, we need, as we look at, at verses three, um, we need to 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 understand what Jesus means by rebuke here. Jesus' rebuke here does not mean a pronouncement of judgment upon this believer, as his woe was in verse one. No, according to the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, uh, rebuking has its beginning and its end purposes in restoration. If we look at Galatians 6, one, Paul again, he writes on this, and he says in, verses, in verse 1 of chapter 6 in Galatians, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, the, the admonition to keep watching yourselves as you to be tempted is there. But we see that rebuke, is to lead to restoration. And and this is what Jesus gets at in verse, verse 3 of Luke 17. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and then if he repents, forgive him, leading to that restoration. See, repentance is always the goal in the community of faith. Repentance is the qualification for restoration. Therefore, if someone sins and they repent, Forgiveness must be offered. It's a non-negotiable for the community of faith. This is what Jesus has done for us, is it not? For those of us who are in here, who have repented of their sins to Christ, he's been faithful to forgive us of our sins. And not just one or two of them. He's been faithful to forgive all of our sins. And therefore, we're obligated in holy responsibility. It is our duty to Christ to forgive others when they repent of their sins, that they've committed against us, when they've repented their sins that they're just doing themselves, repented of their sins that they've done against our entire community of faith. Yet, some of us in here still find it difficult at times to forgive others when they repent. Sometimes people do repent, and we still, in our hearts, find it difficult to forgive others. This happens constantly in our marriages. It happens when we parent. It happens in our friendships. It happens in our workplaces. But we're not alone when it comes to the difficulty of expressing forgiveness toward others. I think the disciples in Luke chapter 17, they understood exactly how many of us feel with this challenge to forgive. Look back at verse 4 with me. It says, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive forgive him. Jesus, in verse 4, he's explaining the condition in which they are to offer forgiveness, and that condition is always. It's not just when the sin is impersonal, but even more so when the sin is personal. Verse 4 says, if he, someone sins against you, and, and the emphasis in this sentence is you, you being the personal object of his sinning against. Have you ever had someone sin against you directly, personally. Maybe that happened this week as you were celebrating Thanksgiving with extended family. Maybe that happened on your way here this morning, on the road. Let me just tell you that Jesus, He understands the difficulty of forgiveness. You're not alone in that. He's right there with you. He wants you to come to Him with that weightiness of forgiveness. However, Jesus is making clear to his disciples here in Luke 17, he does not excuse the command for you or for I to forgive others. Jesus instead, he explains the nature of forgiveness in verse 4. With the extreme example of someone sinning seven times, and for those of you in here with theological minds, the number seven is not important. It's just there to show that it does not matter how many times you're sinned against. The nature of forgiveness is that Christ-centered forgiveness is not a quantifiable action. Jesus wants us to get this truth, that true gospel forgiveness does not have limits when true repentance is offered. It should be on the screen. True gospel forgiveness does not have limits when true repentance is offered. And why? Why is that the case? Because Jesus did not place limitations on the forgiveness that he offered to you and to me. When he went to the cross to die for our sins. He simply said. Repent. And you will be saved. Your sins are forgiven. So if you're sinned against. Or you see someone sinning. In love. Rebuke that sinner. Calmly. Gently. Kindly. Compassionately. Caring for their righteousness. Not out of a self-righteous attitude. But caring for their righteousness. Rebuke them. When they repent. Forgive them. And if they don't repent, would you still be willing to forgive them in your heart and maybe even personally go to them and forgive them, knowing and hoping to see the gospel work in their lives? Would you do that, knowing that that forgiveness, true gospel forgiveness, has the power to change lives? See, Jesus at the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And who was there? Who was there at the cross? Some who would make up the first community of believers. And Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he was being stoned to death, in Acts chapter 8, he, he prayed. He said, Lord, do not hold this against them. And who was there then? A man, a Pharisee named Saul, many of us know, became the Apostle Paul. When forgiveness is offered, lives are changed. This has happened all throughout history. We could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about examples of how lives have been changed by forgiveness, but it's happening now. It happens now. And so will you forgive even the one who sins against you when repentance is not offered? I know that this application is easier said than done. Forgiveness is hard. It's not a joke. And Jesus' disciples, again, they felt the weight of this task too. But check this out. This is really cool. And It's our third point of the text today. That forgiven disciples actually have genuine faith to forgive others. Look back at verse 5 with me in the text. It says that the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They said, increase our faith. This is interesting. Luke here changes in in verse 5. He changes the categorization of the disciples in verse 1 to apostles in verse 5. Do you all see that? Disciples to apostles. Whenever Luke does this in his gospel, he's highlighting the feelings of inadequacy of the disciples. These disciples, they know that they need something to happen in their spiritual lives so that they can forgive like Jesus is talking about. They know they don't have it in their own strength to forgive. Not in the sense that Jesus desires for them. And so they do what they know what to do. That's oftentimes what we do. We do what we know what to do. They simply ask, Lord, give us more faith. They say, increase it, Lord. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 6, Jesus says, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. (laughs) Okay, so increase our faith, Lord. We want to forgive, but it's hard. Have faith like a mustard seed. Do you all know what these are right here? Maybe in the back you might not be able to see, but these are mustard seeds. Probably two, three hundred of them right in this little bottle. I can't tell you where I got this from, so don't ask me. But uh, yeah, these are some of the smallest seeds in creation. And I've often, I've often wondered this to myself. Do I have faith that's this big? Is my faith this big? Is your faith this big? Have you uprooted any mulberry trees? Or uh, you know, other gospel writers will say, Have you moved a mountain just by speaking lately? Because I haven't. So does that mean that I don't have enough faith? Is that what it means? Do you have enough faith? No, I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about. So what is Jesus trying to explain to his disciples here? You see, the disciples want more faith. They want more quantity of faith. Yet Jesus uses this tiny seed to reveal to his disciples that faith is not about quantity. It's not about how much you have, but rather what kind you have. Faith is about quality. What is the quality of your faith? If your faith is genuine in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and instill you with the power of the Holy Spirit, then all things are possible with God. And here's how we know this to be true. Jesus here, he takes the image of a mulberry tree, which has an intricate root system. It's very widespread. It's deep. And he says, just to reveal the genuineness of of real faith, he says this tree could be uprooted and planted in the sea. Can you plant a tree in the sea? No, you can't. I looked it up this morning just to make sure. (laughs) I thought that would be a bad example if you could. But you can't. You can plant a tree near a sea, by a sea, but you can't plant a tree in the sea. It's literally a paradox. It's impossible. So Jesus is not saying with genuine faith you can do this. He's not saying you could move a mountain. That's not what he's saying, so don't hear me wrong on this. What he is saying is that with genuinely qualitative faith, you can do what seems paradoxical. You can do what seems impossible. Jesus' disciples in Luke 17 could forgive and and personally forgive others, and interpersonally in their community of faith, they could forgive those who had sinned against them. You, I, we can forgive those who sin against us, and who sin against this community of faith. See, there have been incidents in our church history where this has happened, where individuals have sinned against one person or the community as a whole. I remember one incident vividly because I remember being furious Shaking literally in anger when I found out about it. My flesh wanted to do everything but forgive. Actually to inflict some form of pain, harm, or punishment on this person. It's how I grew up. It's what I know how to do. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of genuine faith. Genuine faith, which is a faith that arises out of a humble acknowledgement of who I am, who we are. In Jesus Christ. Says that we are forgiven. We are forgiven. And so we can forgive. Because God in Jesus. God in Jesus. He has uprooted our mulberry tree of sin. And planted it in the sea. That's what Jesus has done. Luke 18.27 says. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Genuine faith forgives. And yeah, for me, it did take time to forgive that person who sinned in that situation. But with genuinely qualitative faith, the disciples could forgive others in their community and so can we. So I ask you, are there circumstances, situations, past hurts or pains in your life right now that are weighing on your heart or maybe that you've already mentally suppressed in which Jesus is saying to you this morning that you need to express some genuine faith towards and forgive, forgive someone, forgive a situation. Maybe for you it's not a person. Maybe for you it's less of a personal hurt and more broadly a a cultural or societal narrative, a historical narrative that's put a lot of oppression upon you or people that you relate to. There's still a call to express forgiveness towards this here in the scriptures. So brother and sister, will you say with the disciples, will you say with me, mulberry tree, be uprooted from my life and be planted in the sea? Will you forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving out of genuine faith, even If you're tired, tired of forgiving with what seems to be little or no return, simply because you have been forgiven by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his eyes, you always are forgiven. All of of Jesus' disciples here, minus Judas Iscariot, all of Jesus' disciples here in this room, this morning, we do have the power to forgive. But we only have this power and this privilege to forgive because it's part of our DNA makeup. I hope that's been clear as we've looked at the scriptures this morning. It's part of our DNA makeup. It's a profound duty to forgive, but in reality, it's a duty that we're simply commanded to carry out because we are so, so undeserving of the grace of God and Jesus Christ. We're so unworthy of the forgiveness that we have experienced through Christ. We need to understand that truth because that truth will lead to this. Just because we can and perhaps even do forgive, that does not make us any more spiritual or righteous than the ones that we are forgiving. Just because we can and perhaps even do forgive, that action does not make us any more spiritual or any more righteous than the one that we are forgiving. And we have to be on guard against this type of thinking. This is the type of thinking that the Pharisees had in the Gospel of Luke, in Jesus' time. They had it because it often likes to creep in to our lives, into our hearts unexpectedly. So as the last point of our text today, Jesus wants his followers to know that forgiven disciples serve humbly. Forgiven disciples serve humbly. Jesus makes this clear to his disciples with the last parable in this in this text today, uh, in verses 7 through 10. I'm going to read again verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Of course he does not. Of course he does not. It's not an obligation for the master to thank the servant for what he's commanded to do. You don't get a pat on your back for doing what you're supposed to do at your workplace, do you? It's expected. But Jesus in this parable, he goes further. He defines this reality even more as he points out that these are servants. Servants are supposed to symbolize the disciples. They're servants. Servants are those who essentially have no right of their own. They have been submitted to the authority of someone else. And so they don't get to pick and choose what they're going to do or when they're going to do it. They're simply to serve faithfully until their service is fulfilled. They're not more honored either, because they do what they're supposed to do. Here in this parable, they don't get to sit at the master's table. They don't get any extra credit. They don't get any merit. They have no form or sense of entitlement coming from what they're supposed to do. And church, this is a picture of the Christian life, is it not? If you're a disciple of Christ, you're to keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, as well as keeping all the other commands of Christ until your service is fulfilled, until either you die or until Jesus comes back. You're to fight against sin in your own lives. You're to fight against sin in the community. You're to forgive, serve humbly, because that's what we are called to do. And this duty of a disciple, it arises from one key understanding. Look at verse 10 with me again. Jesus says, so you also, disciples, Us, when you've done all that you have commanded, you have been commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. These disciples, the ones who actually spent time with Jesus, walked with him in the flesh, they were unworthy. We are unworthy. Not in the sense that our lives don't matter, no. Our lives do matter. But we are unworthy in the sense that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to earth for these disciples. He came to earth for the lost sheep of Israel. He came to earth for the Gentiles. He came to earth for peoples from all nations, tribes, and tongues, and languages. He came to earth for peoples of all colors and shapes and sizes. He came to earth to give his life as a ransom to satisfy the wrath of God against us for our sins. So that we may obtain His forgiveness, His salvation that He freely offers to the repentant. We are unworthy. Do you feel that? Do you feel that that truth that we are unworthy? We just celebrated Thanksgiving on Thursday. It's past Thursday. Are you thankful for that? You see, we are unworthy in that we are undeserving. But praise be to God who counted us worthy To give His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And praise also be to God who although we are undeserving, He does in fact count us worthy to invite us to His table at the wedding feast of the Lamb so we can recline and eat with our Master forever. So brothers, sisters, friends in here this morning, I do not know the ins and the outs of every single aspect of your life, but I do know this, that that we are faced with temptations to sin daily. I know that we are even tempted to turn a blind eye toward our own sin or the sin of others. I know it's hard to forgive others. And I know sometimes it seems impossible to serve Christ faithfully. We get that. I get that. But Jesus made it clear for us in the text this morning what we are to do, how we are to respond, is that we are to not forget our roots. We're not to forget where we came from. As disciples, we're to humbly acknowledge who we are in God through Christ as the people who have been forgiven of our sins so that we, we can fight against that sin. We can pursue righteousness individually, as a community, as a church, forgiving others, and serving the Lord. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I, I want those of us who are believers in here to, to just reflect. As you take the, the cup, as you take the, the bread, reflect on the accomplished work of Jesus Christ for you on the cross, that He came so that you would have forgiveness of your sins. And ask Him, out of that reflection, out of that humbleness, Ask Him to help you to fight against sin in your life. Ask Him to help you to forgive others. Ask Him to help you to serve Him faithfully day after day after day simply because you've been forgiven. And those of you in here who do not follow Christ, this meal is not for you, but this time is also for you to reflect on the accomplished work of Christ for you too. Jesus came so that you would have the forgiveness of your sins. You might experience that. And he asks now, in this time, to to come to him in prayer, asking for the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in him to be your Savior and Lord. The church, as we we come to the the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to pray, and then you take it as the Lord leads. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, or that we would know you, we would have forgiveness of our sins, or that we could live for you. And I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters, for myself, God, that you would not let us leave here without understanding that. Help us to know and to believe and to be propelled forward. By this truth, that because we are forgiven, we can live faithfully following Christ each and every day, fighting against sin, fleeing temptation, pursuing righteousness together, forgiving others when it's hard, serving you each and every day. And I just pray for those in here who do not know you, God, that Father God, that they would just come before you in humbleness. Seeking you to forgive them of their sins, God. I pray that they would long for the joy that you give when you forgive sinners. I pray, God, they would trust you, with all their hearts, with all their minds, with all their soul, with all their strength, God. Their lives would be forever changed. In Jesus' name, we pray.